If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Amy Edmondson. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, specializing in the areas of psychological safety, teams, and organizational learning. She's recognized as one of the top 10 thinkers on business and management globally. Before entering academia, Amy worked as the chief engineer for visionary architect and inventor Buckminster Fuller. After that, she became fascinated by the interaction of people and systems thinking, leading to her work on organizational change and eventually to earning her PhD at Harvard. A globally sought-after thinker and speaker, Amy is the author of six books, including her 2019 award-winning work, The Fearless Organization. That's a book we go deep on in this conversation, and which I highly recommend you get a copy of if you're interested in this topic. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground. Among other things, we talk about the anxiety that people perceive in the workplace and in school and how to relax around it. What was it like to work with Buckminster Fuller and why, in his words, we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to the world. We clarify several key misconceptions about psychological safety and missteps putting it into action. We talk about the wrong ways to build psychological safety and hint a psychological safety initiative is not the way to go about it. Also, I tried something new in this episode and included several questions that I sourced from the audience. So if you send in your questions or comments about what you're interested and curious about to connect at enliven.fm, I can work them into episodes or also get back to you with what I'm learning along the way. So without any further delay, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Amy Edmondson. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and being here. It is a real privilege to have you with us. Oh, Andrew, thank you for having me. Amy, yeah, you said two things. I heard you, I've heard you say two things elsewhere that I just really loved, and I thought it would be a great place to start. And one was um, that resonates deeply with me and, and the, really the mission of this show, which is really, as a show, this is an exploration of how do we make things that make things better, right? How do we make organizations that make things better? How do we make products that make things better? And then what does it take for people as you know, caring leaders and people in the world to, to actually do that? That's what the show is about. And so there was something you said. Um, I heard you say that we all yearn to develop and express ourselves in the service of something greater than ourselves. And there was another phrase you, I heard you say elsewhere where you, you said, you don't belong to you, you belong <laughs> to the world. And I was just hoping you could expand on that a little bit and tell us what that means to you. Well, on the second one or the first one? Whichever one's resonating. Well, the second one, I, I have to uh, cite the source, um, although the, the source is Buckminster Fuller, who said, you don't belong to you, you belong to the universe. And the point of that statement is is that, um, I mean, in many ways, it, it takes the pressure off, right? It, it's instead of having to worry so much about who am I and am I good enough and I am I am I um, uh, sort of accomplishing enough, you can relax a little and just say, I have a role to play in this in this grander scheme. Mm-hmm. Now the context for Buckminster Fuller saying that, which was in the in the late twenties, uh, was a moment of great um, despair for him, where where he had felt that he he was in his early thirties and he felt he had made a real mess of everything, hmm. and and uh, let's see, sixty years later, I worked for him as his chief engineer. So this is how I um, really how I got my my professional start. I mean, my mm-hmm. first job was a 
very strange job. I worked as an engineer for a, a boss who was four times my age, um, who had a grand um, sense of of excitement about about life and what each of us could contribute. So it was a very, very great uh, way to start one's career, I assure you. Uh, uh, wait, so let me let me be clear. So his, in this period of, in his early 30s, of feeling like um, a failure and that he'd let his family down and let his wife and his wife's family down, mm-hmm. he contemplated taking his own life and says he was struck by a very profound sense of insight of a, almost an external voice saying, you do not have the right to do away with yourself. You don't belong to you. You belong to the universe. Now, the insight there was you might not know why you're here, but you're here for a reason. And the mm-hmm. particular, and I think this is true for all of us, the unique experiences that you have had um, can and must be translated into something meaningful going forward, right? It's, you might not be in the best position to know why you're special and why you have something to contribute, but rest assured you do. Mm. And it, so it takes the pressure off. It's not necessarily, it's up to you to be here and look forward and, and want to contribute, but it's not up to you, uh, to decide whether you're good enough to be here. You are. Uh, <laughs> but virtue of the fact you're here. Exactly, exactly. And you're unique. And there is a, uh, you know, Nilofer Merchant talks about onlyness, which I think is very much along these same lines. It's that each of us um, has a sort of unique role to play. And the more we can find what that is and not feel like a cog in a larger system, the better off we and the larger system are. Mm. Wow. I, I love that. Thanks. So thank you, first of all, for sharing. I, I'm so curious. When, so you originally the source, as you said, was Buckminster Fuller. And, but what was it like working with him? I mean, you, you worked with him, right? I love the story where you, you effectively just wrote him a letter out of the blue and he wrote you back with a job offer. But tell me a little more about that. Like, What, what was that actually like? What, do you remember your first day working with him? I do. I do very much remember the first day because um, I showed up in the Philadelphia office and I I didn't know it at the time. Uh, Bucky was there um, and he had a small office. There were about seven people who worked there and, and he was there and I didn't realize at the time how unusual that was. I mean, he, he just traveled a lot. He traveled three weeks out of four, maybe maybe more. He was in the office you know, three or four days a month um, at most. So I didn't realize that I'd just gotten a little bit lucky. I showed up and there he was. Um, and um, he didn't have a, a clear sense of what he wanted me to do. Um, and um, the his, his uh, executive office manager, the person who really ran his life in the office, um, didn't know what to do with me either. And so very quickly I was making photocopies. Now that that's the kind of you know that's the kind of task that ages me because nobody makes photocopies anymore. You know, now we everything's PDF or we print it or whatever. But we um back then there was a lot of work in a lot of offices of making photocopies and you know, so he was writing a new book and I was photocopying the manuscript to go to someone else. You know, it was, it was really boring, um, work. So it was, it was, uh, motivating, uh, to quite quickly try to 
get into doing something a little more interesting. (laughs) I love that. By the way, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, I love that your your moniker in this chat, (laughs) so instead of you wrote self-disciplined astronaut, did you write that or did it auto (laughs) chat? I don't know where I thought that was your that was you. No, I thought it was I you. Just, I, I just don't know where that came from, but I love it. I was like, what a cool you know, moniker. But it's also Bucky. You know, we I don't usually talk about Bucky anymore, but he was he called us all astronauts on spaceship Earth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? I was like, oh maybe it's I was thinking maybe it's a Bucky reference. Yeah, and and self discipline. He also had his self disciplines of uh, anyway. Well, it's amazing. The, the spirit of Bucky is with us. Yeah, I might keep it. I might have there to you keep go. It. Uh, here, yeah. I'll, I can screenshot it and send it to you. That way, you have like, yeah. hey, look, I am yeah. in fact a self disciplined right. astronaut. The, the, yep. <laughs> so there you go. The spirit of Bucky is alive and well, and, and, and with right. us. It's <laughs> with us now, yep. it's official. Um, what a fun! What a fun coincidence. I'm curious, you must have had such a range of experiences working with him. When you reflect back on that, what has stuck with you, do you think, whether it was a lesson from him directly or just something you took from your time there? What do you carry with you? I think, um, in many ways, I think that's an easy question for me because the meta lesson, which was loud and clear, I mean, not on the first day, but almost, um, was, was the experience of being trusted uh, to do you know some of the most important and central work so within a pretty short time I was doing engineering drawings and, and calculations for the development of new geodesic solutions for simpler geodesic uh, dome configurations that could mm-hmm. be larger without exponential complexity so I'm I'm doing that and I, I'm doing that with a calculator and a you know pencil and 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 various things because it's right before you know, personal computers came in and um, and nobody's overseeing my work I'm mm-hmm. just doing it I can see if it works when I build things I give I give it to I give the work to Bucky f- periodically he's always very um, pleased with it. And um, he treats me as if I'm a genius, which, you know, I'm not. But it's, a, it's an amazing experience to be given, to be told, in a sense, you're being given very uh, important work. And then to be appreciated for doing it, mm-hmm. trusted, mm-hmm. Um, to be without real uh, oversight, um, you know, with coaching and guidance, but no oversight and control, if you will. Uh, so it was, um, it was a, it was, it, it led me to um, experience and then almost take for granted that work is a place where you learn and grow, where you feel good about what you're doing, where you believe that what you're doing matters some small way to making a better world, um, where you're, where your colleagues um, aren't frightening. Uh, in fact, they're <laughs> the opposite of frightening. You know, they're interested in what you have to say. They're appreciative of what you do. Um, I got to control most of my own work. I mean, I got to just decide in the morning what I would get done today. And so I, uh, I worked incredibly hard. Uh, all, so that little list that I just said is really what I think work should be like. Um, what I think yeah. work, work can be like. I, I love that, right? It's such like, what if the yeah. vast majority of workplaces were like that? Right. I mean, ho- holy crap. Like right. what, <laughs> what could be possible? I don't, I don't even yeah. know, but I know it's right. extraordinary. Right. 
the, the trust, the respect, the sense of mission, absolute intrinsic motivation. I, you know, I basically started this job not knowing if I'd be paid or not, figuring out I just will, you know, I'll do something on the side. I'll figure it out. I'll get, uh, I had to, yeah. I mean, he was such a hero. I, I really wanted to be there, but within a few days I learned I would be paid, which was good. Um, not very, not very much. I was paid, um, you know, very little. Um, and, uh, I didn't care at all. That's, that's the best, right? It's like when the money's an afterthought, you're like, yeah, right. the money is yeah. great, but right. that's no I'm here. I saved money. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't, I had a bicycle and a, a bunch of roommates in a nice house in West Philly. I mean, it was who, what did I need money for? Nothing. You know? Sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll move on from Bucky here in a minute. But was he intimidating at all? Like no, I, I just imagine no, showing up, I'd be, no. I might feel so intimidated. Yeah, by this, you might, this. but no, he would, he would immediately, you might show up feeling intimidated. I certainly did, but within three minutes, he would have had you off that and, and, and onto something else. I mean, he was just, um, he was joyful. Mm. He was appreciative. He was cheerful. Mm. He was, you know, he was um, always sort of um, interested and curious uh, in, yeah. in what was going on and what other people were bringing. Uh, so I also in a, you know, the sideshow here was also this idea that, oh, you know, here's a man in his, in his uh, late 80s who's perhaps the most joyful human being I've ever met, right? So that's, that was a new thing. That was a new possibility. Yeah, like holy crap! Look, look at this. Yeah. Here's someone flourishing for yeah. a long time. Yeah, and such a you know, it's just so full of love and 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 uh, excitement. I love that. That's so cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. I re- I really appreciate it. You know, it, being working where you work, right? Working at Harvard. One of the things you said right in the beginning of this conversation that that really struck me was this idea. It came out of that quote of you know, you don't belong to you. You belong to the universe or or to the world. And this idea that um. You can relax a little bit, yeah. And I, and I was just imagining that that seems like the kind of seems like a really positive influence. That if I was a you know high stressed Type A grad student at HBS, would probably be a really good thing. And I'm curious if you notice that that being an especially needed set of guidance for people these days, whether at a, whether at Harvard or in in where you you know engage outside of Harvard. I do think so. I think an awful lot of um, young people starting out in various careers are, are deeply anxious, understandably. Um, in, in, I mean, it's not a, it's not necessarily a character flaw uh, to be anxious. I was anxious, um, but but anxious in a way that creates a sense of loneliness right? because mm-hmm. you're you can't um, you can't let your guard down. You can't let your mask. Um, go aside. And yeah. that is a vicious cycle. It's counterproductive because the that anxiety um, can so easily be lessened um, with a few small things, you know, sort of a recognition you're not alone, that everybody pretty much is in the same boat, feels like you do, you know, so that I, I think sometimes that a feeling of connectedness is the most important thing you can have in the workplace. You know, the sense of, I, I, yeah, I show up, I work hard. I'm anxious sometimes about making a deadline or doing great sure. work, but not about my colleagues, not about being found out. Yep. I, when, when we first uh, logged on today, we, ta- we had some problems with the technology and it, 
you know, at one point you said, oh, it was all my fault. Um, <laughs> I, I did something wrong. And, and I, you know, jokingly said, oh, that makes me feel so much better because it's usually me. But there is a, you know, it's always in good humor. But there's a way in which we're so afraid to be found out or to be less than perfect mm-hmm. in any way, rather than just realizing it's funny and fine. <laughs> when we screw up, we're going to do it. We're it to air is human, right? That's going to happen full stop. So get over yourself, right? Yep. Relax. And it's so much more fun to be curious about someone else and what they bring than to be tense about being found out. Yeah, I, I could almost stop the interview right now, except we have a lot of other cool things to talk about. But that, I mean, absolutely. Do you think that's why this struck such a chord in the last year? Or, or is, yeah. I'm curious if you notice, like, what? Why do you think your your timing was basically perfect with this book? <laughs> and I'm curious, did you plan it? Was it luck, or what do you think? Why did this strike such a chord right now? I, you know, I don't know really, but my best guesses are that. Uh, there's uh, that people really have you know we have finally recognized that we do knowledge work right you know that even in the most routine tasks it's usually knowledge work and knowledge work means got to use your knowledge and and that means we've got to be and the knowledge that we use is in constant state of flux. So so I think there's sort of a recognition that, wow, if people are holding back, if we're not hearing from you, if you can't bring what you know forward, we're at risk. So there's, there's a kind of um, growing recognition, finally, that the pace of change and the reality of expertise and knowledge and uncertainty requires us to be a different way, right? It requires us to be willing to speak up to take interpersonal risks, and that's not normal. I think also some of the less positive aspects of the workplace that have come to light over the last year or so, including uh, the Me Too movement um, and you know various other corporate scandals and problems, have have led people to be more aware that people are holding back an awful lot mm. and that it comes out eventually. Right? So, so what are we doing wrong? You know, how, how are we creating environments where this movie script is playing out over and over and over again? Just to set a grounding for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. So the, the book is The Fearless Organization, came out last year. It is really a treatise in a very practical way about building psychological safety in the workplace. But I think it also is broadly applicable to families, to, you know, volunteer organizations, to teams, to I mean, really anywhere you've got groups of humans collaborating to do something um, or just live. Just to set a, set a baseline, you know, I've heard you describe it as um, psychological safety, that is, as sort of not getting tied up in knots about interpersonal risk. How, how do you how do you like to describe it for people now? And, and I guess related to that, what is it not? Oh, great. Well, I like to describe it because I think it's conveys what I really mean as a, a sense of felt permission for candor. Mm. This is, I just 
look around and I feel like this is a place where I can be candid, mm-hmm. where I can ask for help, where I can say, oops, I made a mistake, where I can um, say I don't know, um, where I can uh, suggest a wacky idea, right? That that's, mm-hmm. um, and I, it just feels possible, right? It feels mm-hmm. easy. So, um, so that's, that's the best I can do, I think, to define it. And yet, as when even when I do my best, I will still inadvertently imply um, people will think, "Oh, it's about being nicer to each other." Like, mm. no. And the reason mm. I'm not against being nice, but the <laughs> reason why psychological safety is not about being nice is that oftentimes, at least at work, being nice is code for I'm not going to tell you what I really think. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go along. I'm going to nod, but then in the hallway, I'm going to tell my other colleague who I trust and like what mm-hmm. I really think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also I also want to say it's not sort of touchy feely. It's not um, absence of conflict. In fact, if you really get this right, it's it's the presence of conflict. I mean, we're yeah. we're going to disagree. We're going to have different views. We're gonna we're gonna sometimes have to really uh, get into it. Um, it's not um, permission just to whine. Like, okay, now you're psychological safe, psychologically safe. You can just uh, sit there and and whine about what you don't like around here. Um, I mean, that might be fine and and come along with the territory, but it's not. That's not what I'm talking about per se, um, and it's not Nirvana, right? And, uh, and and you know, it's also not the goal. The goal is learning or excellence or contribution for the mission. Um, and all I'm saying is that if you don't have this kind of climate where where permission to speak up feels easy then you won't be able to do the work as well. Yeah, no, it's, I think you, you said that very well. And it went to how we actually originally came and came and got connected was I, I had some misconceptions of my own about what did this term mean? And what is the psychological safety thing? And right. I think I had two really critical misconceptions that um, I have heard now from other people as I've been talking about this, getting ready for right. this conversation. And the first one was that it was the same as... Um, belonging or a sense of fitting right. in right and, right, and right, really right, as right. we as i explored it it seems like and feel free to please correct me where i'm getting this wrong um it seems like this is really about it's about voice it's about candor it's about the the conditions that provide a easy opportunity to speak up about anything work related i think there was a reference you used a lot or a phrase you used a lot about any work related idea yep work relevant yep and I thought, oh, well, that's very interesting because you're not saying, or I think you're not saying it's about anything on your mind or about right. you know what you had for lunch two weeks ago or your random personal hobby. Right. right. So, so, so say a bit more about that because I think that that there's something there. I think that's it's so important to to um, realize we're not talking about. I'm not talking about just unleashing every thought that flows through your head. Um, whether that sounds fun or horrifying is up to you. I'm, I, I'm talking about work relevant information. So if you, if you suddenly feel all your colleagues should be interested in what you had for lunch today, you need a second thought. It's, it's, um, you, so, and this is in fact where the discipline comes in. I mean, I think mm. psychological safety is the f- sense of freedom that I can bring my full self forward, but I also have an obligation to be, thoughtful and disciplined about what I bring forward. Now, it's okay to 
err on the side of inclusion. Like if I'm not quite sure that something's relevant, I probably should check, right? Mm-hmm. But there are many things that are obviously not not relevant and not helpful for the here and now. And so learning and engaging and and sort of contributing to the shared work is a process that requires both a sense of psychological safety or and or discipline right sort of discipline to to get it right and to be thoughtful mm. you know I, I, there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, about courage and people are and i'm i'm all for it right starting to write about uh courage and courageous cultures and the the immediate questions that come to mind are okay well if you have a you know if you have a courageous culture does that mean we don't need psychological safety anymore or if psychological safety does that obviate the need for courage and i think the answer to both questions is no that that in fact i think psychological safety and courage are two sides of the same very valuable coin Mm. right that that um it's no matter no matter what, there will be things that are going to be challenging for me to say, or I'll, I'll worry that I won't get this quite right. So I, I need to sort of, you know, screw up my courage just a little bit to, mm-hmm. uh, to you know, to jump in there and try. Uh, but meanwhile, there will be co- you can easily imagine workplaces where I don't care how much courage you. Have, I mean, you're just not going to do it. You're mm-hmm. holding back. It doesn't feel appropriate. It feels that it's not your place, etc. So. Whether you think of this as a need for more courage or as a need for more safety, almost doesn't matter too much. I think the only real difference is that the emphasis in the term courageous cultures is on the individual yep. to speak up. You ought to speak up, right? Mm-hmm. And the emphasis on psychological safety cultures is a little bit more on the combination of leaders team and otherwise and the collective like it's up to us it's up to us to draw each other out it's up to us to do what we can to make it easier for people to express themselves yeah i think the key word what you said is easier right not zero effort right you know so maybe it lowers the threshold or the bar of courage required but it doesn't uh, like eliminate the need for for guts exactly and in fact i sometimes think about the question, it's a hypothetical question, but where do we put the threshold? Mm. Right, where do I put the threshold? Because clearly there's, you put it somewhere of what I, what I will and what won't speak up about. Mm-hmm. And my primary argument is that most people, most of the time in most workplaces are putting the threshold for voice too high, right? They put yep. it up here when it should be down here, uh, not at the floor, uh, but but it should be lower than your instincts tell you it should yeah, be. Totally. Right? Totally. Yeah, this is so so useful because I think really going back to that belonging bit, one of the places where originally I and, and a few other people I've had conversations with about this got tripped up was thinking, oh, okay, psychological safety means um, I, we sort of combined the factors of being able to have voice and you know speak up about a work related idea with the sense of um, I'm thinking of a good friend of mine uh, a sense of he basically didn't feel culture fit let's put it that way right whereas like this person felt safe to say work related things just didn't really feel like I'm in the right place right a sense of um, tribe for lack of a better word and it's like oh those are just different things right and and one doesn't invalidate the other right 
Right. In fact, you could easily imagine the possibility of four conditions, right? One with low on both, mm-hmm. um, one very nice place to work with high on both. Like, I feel like I really am, I belong here. I fit in. I'm included. I feel psychologically safe. You know, that's kind that's of the great. type, that's the kind of workplace most of us want. Sure. Um, but you certainly can imagine a place where I absolutely feel my voice is welcome. Um, but this isn't really my tribe. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't feel, um, people are um are like me or that this is a place for people like me that's okay we could also imagine a place where if you look around and you sort of say yeah this is a a great deal um the type of place where i belong um and maybe you just feel overly nervous or anxious you don't want to screw it up so you um either because of cues in the environment or because of what you tell yourself, you don't feel psychologically safe to voice. Yeah. Right. You, you see that a lot with groupthink, I think, right. Where it's this yes. sense of almost like, Oh, I, you almost like you fit in so much that it's even, it might even be harder to be psychological, have psychological safety. Cause you're like, well, I fit in so much that if I risk something now I'm actually more at risk. Cause now I might get pushed out a little bit. And you know, that fear of exclusion runs deep in humans. You bet. Absolutely. And so that's a, it's almost, it's a, it's a, it's faulty thinking in a way because it's, I don't want to disrupt the harmony of this marvelous in group. Mm-hmm. So I won't say, I won't say anything dissenting when in fact your colleagues might be assuming that if you had something dissenting to say, you'd, you'd say it and that's how you'd add value. And, and you might be the only person who sees some real important risk that's not being discussed and you hold back for fear of disruption it reminds me of the the story in the book i think about the um the exec who who was afraid of being the i think it was the phrase was a skunk at the party was that the right phrase the skunk at the picnic picnic the picnic yeah so he's a you know so he's a senior executive relatively new to the executive team from the outside the team is discussing discussing an acquisition a plan you know planned acquisition doesn't sound like a good idea to him but as he said, he didn't want to be the skunk at the picnic. Mm. Um, you know, I've used that example to convey the idea of a frame too. Because mm. sometimes I talk a lot and I talk in the end of the book about the job of, of leaders and meaning anyone can be a leader. But the, the job is to deliberately reframe mm. reality so that we can be more learning oriented. Um, but it's a, it's a good illustration of, you know, what's a frame? You know, a cognitive frame is a, it's a structure that um, through which you see reality, mm-hmm. um, largely, you know, unaware. But mm-hmm. if if you think about it, uh, framing an executive committee meeting as a picnic is mm. wrong. Yep. Framing a dissenting view as a skunk is wrong, right? and it shapes the behavior. It led him to hold back. Yeah. And and I think he held back because he had the wrong frame. At the right frame is you're a you know a smart and by the way more objective colleague because you came from the outside. Yeah, you have fresh might, eyes. Might very well see something. You know, you have fresh eyes. That's a nice frame. Who might see something important that others have missed, and it's your job to share it. Right, a very different frame. Absolutely, absolutely. So so. One of the things I, I want to sort of shift now that we've got a, a bit of a theoretical foundation here and we, you know, we've got psychological safety. We know what it is now that we're talking about. I want to talk a little bit more. I want to explore a bit more territory, which I think is what 
if I understood from some of my research, where you're looking to now, which is really about like the action. How do you put this into action? How do you make this real? The tools, the techniques, etc. And I thought it would actually be fun to, and I'm just especially curious to hear how you actually do this. So I've heard you say elsewhere that I think you said how we teach is what we teach. And I'm curious, how do you go about creating this environment? What do you do in your classroom with your grad students or when you, you know, maybe engage with a, with a company outside of, outside of the university? Both, in fact. So how we teach is what we teach um, primarily refers to our, at, at Harvard Business School, our very heavy reliance on the case method. Mm. So the case method involves um, everybody reading the same case, which, by the way, the case itself doesn't have a lot of analysis in it. It's the it's a pretty factual telling of a particular managerial situation, you know. And um, we convene in the classroom, and the professor starts to ask questions, right? Mm. And I would call the questions good questions, um, according to the following definition, which is that they focus on some issue, right? They don't just say, hey, what's on your mind, Andrew? They say, um, what do you think about, what do you think the, our protagonist should do, right? So they focus on a particular issue. They give the person room to respond. Um, they invite careful thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so in the process of, you know, over a class session asking good questions, um, I am hoping that that students will internalize the art of the good question as well as the content or the frameworks or the various other other things that that case is designed to teach. And, and if that can become habitual uh, for managers, um, even for members of, of any team whatsoever, you know, habitually to be, to act as if, because that's what I'm doing, I'm mm-hmm. acting as if, which of course it's true, I'm genuinely interested in what you have to say. I ask that question and then I listen and I look like I'm listening. And I'm hoping by doing that, that others are doing the same thing at the same time and that they're thinking and and ready to respond right so mm. i could then i should then be able to turn to anyone whether they expect it or not and say hey well, what do you think of what andrew said um, you know so that sort of you're teaching a process of being curious you're teaching a process of being following the dialogue mm-hmm. of being interested in what others have to say of being expected to react to it not just say, yeah, I agree, but to say, um, it's an interesting point and I, I wonder about this or I completely see it differently, right? That's the class is more fun. In fact, sometimes I have to, um, you stir the pot a bit <laughs> deliberately say, because, you know, if, if I just say, I call on you, you say something, I then randomly call on someone else. There's a 50 50 chance at least, and sometimes it seems higher that they'll just build on what you said and agree. And sometimes that's happening three or four comments in a row. And I have to say, specifically ask the question, who has a different view? A call out, call out dissent yeah. a little bit. Right. Because I want now I only, I'm asking for a narrower set of hands. I don't want just any old hand. I want only hands who are you know, willing and able to speak up with a different view. Mm. Uh, So another thing about how we teach is what we teach is, you know, good questions, good listening, building, going somewhere, um, and and, um, 
ultimately um, ensuring diversity of voice, right? Diversity mm-hmm. of opinion, diversity of expertise, sort of ensuring. So I'm, I'm doing it. It's important to do that anyway, but I'm not always doing it just because the case needs it. I'm doing it because that's what we're trying to teach. That what we do takes process help. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. Groupthink happens spontaneously. No problem. It will happen, you know, but really good conversations, they take work. Yep. That's so, yeah, I, I love that. And it's interesting because I, you know, I, so I spend most of my time, like I love the podcast, but it's something I do as sort of a, you know, an out loud learning journey as, as, as someone who spends the vast majority of his time really trying to apply these ideas, um, mostly in the world of technology and innovation. That's where I spent, you know, 95% of my time. Um, and it's really interesting as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how, how, how might, you, how might this be brought into those types of environments, right? Into say, I, I work in product development. So when we're, you know, beating our heads against the wall on solving a new problem that we don't know how to solve. How how does this this help? And and I think what I was curious. You know, you, you talked about the leaders' toolkit on I think it's page one fifty nine in the book where you talk about setting the stage, inviting participation, and, and responding productively. Sort of a you know yeah. a before, during, and There's after three categories. Yeah. Yeah. These sort of three buckets of of actions that a leader right. can can take uh, before, during, and after. You know what you're doing, right. and. Um, I was hoping you could maybe walk us through an example of, of you know, whether that's, you know, if you want to talk about maybe um, Mulali and, and what's happened at Ford, yeah, uh, about yeah. how, like, what did that look like actually to set the stage and the frames like you were discussing and then to actually move into the activity and then to, to sort of loop through this cycle? So I was, um, this is sort of an aside, but I was, te- I was talk I was speaking at a um, conference at Stanford with um, sort of women business leaders in the, in the area. And I was telling that story and, and this one woman uh, um, commented, she said she used to work for him and she oh. said, it's, it's Mulally. Oh. <laughs> like, okay. Like Valley. Okay. It's it. very, it doesn't look like that in writing. So I'll, I'll, anyway, so I'm like, great. Mulally. Okay. Got it. Mulally, right. I still work on that. Um, but um, what, when, when Alan Mulally came in from the outside to lead Ford, Ford was bleeding red ink. I mean, it was, it was the, the company was in real trouble. Right? What, do you know what year this was? Oh, I want to say, um, I should look it up, but I, I want to say around 2007, but it might have been a little, it's probably a little earlier than that, actually, because um, when, when, September 06. 06? Okay, so it's not that bad. So 06. Fall, fall 06. Fall of 06. And, um, and three years later, they were the only one of the big three uh, automotive uh, companies in the U.S. to not need a bailout. Mm. Right? I mean, so they went from being probably worst performing to being best performing. Um, and uh, when when Mulally took over, he essentially, he didn't sort of change out the whole team. He inherited a, a senior team and he brought them together and he introduced a kind of traffic light shortcuts for how we talk about you know what we're what we're up to. Where red is bad news, and yellow is caution, and and green is all as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he tells the story, first couple of uh, executive team meetings, everything's green, right? Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and so finally, he turns around and says to the team, "Listen," he says, "We're on track. 
we are on track to lose 30 billion. Now that's a B <laughs> dollar. You know, it's a staggering amount of money, right? We're on track to lose $30 billion this year, which by the way, I think is a pretty good example of setting the stage. I mean, he's essentially in a way making it permissible to say, yeah, we're in trouble. Like it's, you know, we, we can't be doing everything right and losing $30 billion. So, it's just not possible. Right? So something has to be wrong, right? That's kind of like table stakes. I'm setting the stage. Um, and then he says something like, is there anything not going well? You know, mm. everything's been green. And that's also invite input, you know, invite engagement. He's reaching out and saying, tell me what you're seeing out there that's not working. And as the story goes, there's a deathly pause. And finally, Mark Fields, who is head of all of the Americas, uh, raises his hand and proceeds to describe a very serious problem with the new Ford Edge, um, you know, new vehicle launch. And it's it's got serious production uh, problems and they're kind of accumulating um, work in progress faulty inventory and um the stunning thing about the story is that everybody else in the team reported later to a fortune magazine reporter um that at that moment their thought was okay he's out of here oh they thought he's about to get fired oh he's about to get fired like they literally thought he would get fired for speaking truthfully to power Right, which is crazy in a you know in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. It is crazy that anyone would think that way. You know, maybe a hundred years ago you could run a company that way, maybe, Um, but clearly that's not going to work in in today's world. There will always be things that aren't going well because none of us have a crystal ball, and there's so much complexity and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So. Um, what happened um, in, instead of being fired, of course, um, was that Mulally, in that moment, uh, put his two hands together and started to applaud. And he then said, and, and that, so that's a symbol, right? That's a, a very um, powerful symbol of appreciation. I, I just applauded. Um, and then he said, um, Mark, thank you so much for that clear line of sight, hmm. which um, – I love because it's, I think it's mission critical to express appreciation. And notice it's not Pollyanna talk, right? It's not happy talk. It's not, oh, that's great. No, it's not great. I mean, this is a serious problem, right? Yeah. But so it's an honest statement. Thank you for that clear line of sight because a clear line of sight is always a valuable thing. And, 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 and then almost, you know, without a pause, he says, now what can we do to help? Right. So to me, the essence of a productive response is that it's appreciative and forward-looking. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is very likely um, a need for a post-mortem, right? There's very likely a need to take a look at what happened and why. Not now. Right? Mm-hmm. The most important thing to do and say right now when someone has brought bad news forward or a concern um, – is to is to say how can I help? Right? Mm-hmm. What what should we do? Yep. Um, and then um, 
it, you know, a stunningly, um, within about the next 12 seconds, three executives spoke up with ideas of how to fix it, with offers of engineering talent to send up to, uh, to the plant. I mean, it was, it was sort of remarkable that that one moment of courage on the part of Mark Fields, but inviting engagement on the part of Alan Mulally, they were off and running. Like yeah, that was the moment it turned. The problem-solving process was now underway. Um, and so I also like that story for the following reason. Oftentimes when I start talking about psychological safety and more voice and more candor, people have a worry, which mm. is it's going to – okay, I get it. I can see why it might be productive and – it's going to take too long, right? <laughs> this People is going to take forever, talk Amy. Talk it's going to take – meetings will take forever. So I like to say 12 seconds, right? And then rem- step back and think how much time was wasted because that problem was not reported. Yeah. Right? How much time did you spend dancing around it? Yeah. How much time is wasted day in and day out in meetings around the world – dancing around issues, not being truthful, not being candid. And I would posit that that time wasted is much higher than whatever time it takes to actually get to the bottom of it and start to come up with solutions. And I want to remind people that problem solving is a team sport. Yep. It's we're rarely able to solve really tough problems on our own. Problem recognition is something we're pretty good at. Like each and every one of us are good sensors. We can see problems, um, but we need our colleagues to help solve them. For sure. You know, you, to to the concern that people have raised to you, right, about like how long is this going to take or is this all going to be touchy-feely or whatever, right? It, it seems like then there's always the question in the back of people's minds, especially in the business world of like, well, why is it worth it, right? What's the ROI right. here? Right. It, it seems like one, one way overly simplistic that I would answer that question, just listening to you, the story there about Ford and, and, uh, Mulally is it's like, it seems like what it really, one of the things it enables you to do is that psychological safety, it enables you and everyone here to play to win instead of playing not to lose. Oh, that's exactly right. That's, that's, um, exactly how I think about it because playing, playing to win is kind of let's go for it. Yeah. Now, we might get bruised and scratched along the way, but we're going for it. We're, we're all in. We're not. And when you're playing to win, you're not caught up in, you know, how do I look? And, you know, what do people think of me? You're going for the gold, right? You're going, yeah. you're going for the prize and collectively, whereas playing not to lose is a very natural state, a very natural psychosocial state, which is, um, I, I'd rather not fail, mm-hmm. you know, than take the risk of really going for the win, right? So playing not to lose is, okay, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to step outside the bounds. And and when you play not to lose, you generally succeed in not <laughs> losing, right? Mm-hmm. You, you get your goal accomplished. Like you don't lose. You don't look bad. You kind of manage impressions carefully, um, but you lose out on the opportunity to go after the the bigger win, you know, the opportunity to do something new with your colleagues that um, that required you to sort of bravely jump in and yeah, it's almost like you you've reduced the the spectrum of, that you're willing to tolerate to this very like safe narrow zone, it, safe in like air quotes, right? It's not really safe. It's it just feels less risky. It's like you almost like you don't want to tolerate the feeling of anxiety, vulnerability, whatever. But as a result, you've traded. Yeah, you traded away the lows, but you also traded off the highs. 
Exactly. Exactly. Do you notice any parallels or does it come up at all in, in your research? Um, do you find any parallels to the, to the topic of self-compassion? You know, I haven't um, thought about that a lot, but it, it, with that term specifically. But as soon as you ask it, the answer is yes, right? Because part of what this is all about is um, is self compassion, right? I mean, I think it is about um, reminding yourself that you're 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 fine, just as you, <laughs> you know, flaws and all, right? Yeah, you don't have to get every answer right in the classroom or have everything you do be perfect to be okay. I mean, you have to have that, um, have to be more generous with yourself and, and probably with each other as well. Yeah. No, cause I was, I was thinking about, I, I came across the other day, um, uh, a book I read long ago, which is, I think it's called self-compassion. It's by Kristen Neff, who's sort of the leading huh. researcher on the topic of, of self-compassion and, and sort of the intersection with that and mindfulness. And it occurred to me as I was prepping for this conversation, I was like, Oh, it's interesting because in the same way we're just describing psychological safety is almost like, it seems almost like an external version of self-compassion, right? It's, it's like the right. set of conditions that enables you to be resilient and go for it. Right. Cause right. when you're, when it, According to Kristen Neff's work, when you really have developed self-compassion, you actually um, you go for things more because you're, right. you're able to bounce back, right? You can deal with it not working, right? And it just seems, oh, that seems a little bit related almost in like an inner outer way. And it's also related to the growth mindset that, yes. you know, that sense that um, I don't, I don't have to get everything right all the time. I have to, in fact, keep giving myself harder challenges, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in a good way. Yeah, which then that idea of seeking harder challenges and, and finding one's uh, sense of self-esteem in, in the act of being a learner, right? Almost, in the, it's interesting as we're, I, I think a lot about, um, and I talk to people a lot on this show about, you know, human performance and what are the factors that unlock it. And it's funny, just as you said that, that idea of escalating, laddering up challenges, it almost seems like, well, there's your, there's your link into flow. There's Csikszentmihalyi's work right there. Absolutely. Right? Because without that, like if you can't if you can't ratchet up challenge and go for that ride, you can't actually sustainably have flow in your life. Right, and it's that you know the flow state is that state you know you, you can't be the, you can't be in the panic zone, right? But you don't you don't want to be in the comfort zone either. You want to be in that zone where the magnitude of the challenge is well balanced against the capacity you bring uh, to do it. But you realize that's a you can keep developing that capacity. You can keep getting better at something. Totally. And you can only do it by being willing to take that risk. I also think the flow state is one in which you're less um, self-conscious. You might be self-aware, but not self-conscious. And that mm-hmm. does relate to psychological safety. Yeah, no, it's interesting. A, a future guest on the show actually is working directly with um, Stephen Kotler and all the flow research out there. And that they found that that's actually one of the key bits, uh, key things that happens in, in flow is, oh God, I'm blanking on the part of the brain. I think it, it's the later, uh, lateral dorsal prefrontal cortex, I think, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I will find yeah. it and put it in the show. Yeah. Right. But basically, it's the part of you that gets self-conscious and it just goes uh, offline. Right, it just right, like right, knocks right, offline right. in flow, which is super cool. Um, so it'd, it'd be really interesting actually to explore the link between flow, group flow, and, and psychological safety. Um, that might be a fascinating area to, to look at. So as, as a thought. I agree. Um, so, so kind of coming back around, I, one of the things you said early on that I thought was super 
important. And I remember bolding this in my notes to come back to was this idea that, um, I want to explore where does this, where does implementing this go sideways, right? Cause I think most people who encounter your ideas probably like them. They want to do it, but I'm guessing they're not all successful in implementing it. And one of the things that I heard you say, um, elsewhere was that, you know, it's not, ju- it's not just about like doing a psychological safety initiative, right? It really, it has to be in service of something. It has to be, you know, formed around a goal where it's like, we're going to explore this together. And we, you know, we don't, we know we don't know the answers and it's critical. There is no blueprint. Um, so we're going to have to figure it out together. And so I'm curious, you know, what else do you see about where this works or doesn't work when people are trying to make it real? Well, I think what you just said is the most important thing to me is that, um, and of course, I'm, I'm deeply sort of uh, appreciative of and admiring of anybody engaging their organization in a psychological safety effort of some kind, right? I think that's that's comes from a good place and, and is a good thing to do. And I think it's... Um, far, far, far more likely to be successful if the initiative is on the work, right? In other words, mm-hmm. what what is it that we are trying to do or be that we're not yet? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need to become, we need to um, launch a digital strategy or we need to um, turn our financial performance around or whatever, you know, something that's really truly um, mission critical and then the recognition that we won't be able to do this unless people are able to sort of bring their full self to the to the effort so so then the journey and the the change is being produced by working on the thing mm-hmm. working on the real goal and using the that work as the laboratory for also checking in on how do we become um, how do we create a better climate? How do we take small risks? How do we, how do we, um, you know, it's a, there's a kind of, um, chicken and egg problem here around collaboration and candor. Hmm. It's like, which comes, you know, you need candor to collaborate effectively. Um, but you need to collaborate to have candor. And, and I think it's self, self reinforcing. Uh, but you have to have some substance to really work on. And I don't. Th- I think most companies are not going to have a whole lot of patience for sitting around and talking about psychological safety or any aspect of the culture. Yeah, because that's not the business they're in, right? The business they're in is whatever it is, and and then psychological safety is the servant of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, not only does it help your business, it actually helps everyone's experience in your business too. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, so is, are other than that, do you see any common failure modes? Are there any patterns you're noticing where this just goes sideways? Like, like one example I, that I could imagine is, um, and, and this is uh, actually riffing from a, a, a listener question that somebody submitted. Um, they, let me find it really quick. Um, Ah, there it is. So I'm going to read you this question. Uh, and I think it, it might be a failure yeah. pattern. I'm curious to hear if, if you think so. Um, so the, the listener said, I've noticed a pattern where leaders who highly value niceness and harmony are talking about psychological safety a bit as a reason for not giving or wanting feedback or avoiding address, uh, avoiding addressing issues head on. I'm curious, how do you, how does Amy see the concept being misused or abused in almost a, a shadow culture kind of way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really great question, and I I do see evidence of that. I I want to make sure uh, to say it's I don't think it's deliberate. 
right? I, mean, I think it's um, I think it's inadvertent. I think it's a failure mode, but not a not a malicious mode. Yeah, not like a nefarious uh, evil so plan. That, um, because you know, um, nice, you know, a, a culture of nice can in fact mask a culture of fear. Mm. Because in you know, oftentimes in 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 cultures. Um, there's a lot of companies I've been in where they'll say, "Oh, we have you know fill-in company name here, nice," um, mm. and and it's so funny. Let's let's say the company's name is Edmondson, right? So they'll say we have Edmondson nice around here, and and it's almost as if they think nobody else ever had that, you know. And there's so many so many companies that have that same um, have that same problem, and it it's they understand, you know, when people tell you that they understand it means we can't be disagreeable yeah, um, we can't be and, real yeah we can't be real and and what that means is they have framed or coded uh dissent or input as um as being disagreeable or even disrespectful and in a nice culture you don't want to be disrespectful that no. that doesn't fit with the nice culture so um it's a um it's it's a very real risk and so i think it starts with being i mean the Making sure you don't fall prey to that failure mode is to be very clear and, and explicit at, at the at the outset that um, we're not, this isn't about being nice, right? This this is about um, being passionate about the customer. As as one of my uh, favorite coaches of all time said, she said, "Don't be don't be nice, be great." Yeah, right. It's like this right. is about being great, as great as we can be as a, a company, a team. Yeah. And I used to define, I mean, I used to say psychological safety is kind of a blend of trust and respect. You know, it's a, it's a sort of, um, I, I trust your intentions. I think you're, you know, I, also your, your capabilities. Um, and I respect you, you know, I respect you enough to not hold back. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's almost like you're caring enough to say the hard things. Right. Right. Cause if I don't care, if I'm indifferent to your future, then why would I exert yeah. effort? Why why pay the emotional tax? Right, right. Like you, just, you just skip it. Right. So I want to transition to a couple, a few more of uh, some of the listener questions. I think there's some really fun ones in here. Yeah. Um. So one one that came up was, and I know that you cover this in the book on on page twenty. There's a there's a scale, but it basically was how do you measure safety? You know, it, you, I know in in your surveys you talk about using like a five or a seven point Likert scale. Um. Is, is that what actually works for people who are operating a business or is there another way that they can, yeah. you know, if I'm a team leader, yeah. how can I tell if um, I have a problem or not? You know, it's, it is, um, it is the case that more and more businesses are using this survey. I don't think very many would do a survey just of this, but if they, they throw this into their all employees survey, mm. um, then, then they get some useful data. And one of the most, I mean, I don't think that data is useful for, um, you know, it's not an end in itself. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mirror to mm. say, okay, we should have some conversations in every organization I've ever uh, studied. The, the following is true. Psychological safety varies across groups, right? So it's it's not a, a variable that's just uniform throughout a company like Ford or General Motors or you name it. It's it's this group and that group and and so on. Now there might be de- differences in average across companies, but there's a so to me the important part about using the 
survey if you're interested in those kinds of things is to is to see where the gaps are so that you can help right so that yeah. you can go to those groups where 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 they might need a little bit of help and and turn them around um but i i i don't think you need to use a survey in most in most cases you can um in your own team for example step back and ask yourself how often am I hearing about problems and mistakes and concerns, um, and especially relative to successes or fine, all's well, right? So if if you're if you're not hearing the negative stuff, um, it's very unlikely that that's because things don't go wrong ever. It's probably right. a red flag. Right. So it's probably a red flag, right? You probably have to sort of um, get get into some of these techniques like asking good questions and setting the stage and all of that. Um, so that's one. If you're not if, – if if most utterances are positive, you, you may have a psychological safety problem. Um, if people seem just, you know, kind of tied up in knots or a little bit too formal and not, not you know, there, there isn't a kind of um, – positive warm sense of humor and you know we're 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 able uh, to kind of um laugh about ourselves you know as you and i sure. started this this conversation we laughed about getting the technology wrong and making mistakes and you know neither one of us felt a need to say oh, oh it couldn't have been my fault you know <laughs> um, and, but you know it's funny but in real life often people really don't they do not want to be associated with a problem a failure a mistake of any kind they they feel that that would be you know career ending which of course is rarely the case but so so just Force yourself to step back and ask those kinds of questions and say, like, what, what, what is, you know, it's palpable. What, what is going on here? Yeah. It reminds me of, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Um, Kim Scott's work with radical candor, right? And, and where she gives advice to, to managers of, of any, um, place in the hierarchy of like when you're having your one on ones, for example, how like do people feel basically do people feel safe enough to criticize you right yeah. if, if if your direct reports never tell you like how you are could be, do your job better or have you know never tell you the impact of things you did that didn't work like that's a red flag right if it's right. all sunshine and roses like no it's not <laughs> something's missing here exactly that's yeah, the same thing yep a related question um in this idea that if we know we've got it right, if people, if we can see that people are speaking up, they're using their voice um, in whatever ways are appropriate. I'm curious. And, and a, another listener asked about: Does this differ at all, or, or how does it differ across sort of the introvert, ambivert, extrovert spectrum? Like, it, there are certain people or personality types that are just quieter, they or or less comfortable yeah. in certain situations. How do you how do you uh, think about that? Well, you know, I, I I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. One is I do have some data that suggests that introversion extroversion is not correlated with psychological safety. Right? That there's an equal chance that um, you can be an introvert and an extrovert and be in a psychologically safe, you know, environment or or, or lack thereof um, at work. And the main difference, of course, between introverts and extroverts um, is the energy it takes, right? That if mm -hmm. I'm an introvert, 
it, it takes more out of me to share. I get recharged by being alone and thinking and so on. And if I'm an extrovert, I actually get my battery charged by engaging. I almost have to think aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it would seem like, but that's, it's the energy thing is slightly different than the, do I feel my voice is welcome thing? Yeah. Um, so it, it may still be the case that, that extroverts are talking more. That doesn't mean they're more psychologically safe. Um, and, and, and so that's sort of the, the, the data side of it. But, but it, it is a reality that some people need a little more space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's probably the case that introverts are going to be more dependent on the leadership practice that I describe as inviting engagement. Like if you, sure, ask, yeah. if you ask an introvert a good question, that introvert will happily answer. Mm-hmm. Yep. It seems like it would also be about um, having, if, if you're trying to create this environment and foster this environment, having sort of a, a you know, a number of tools in your tool belt to, for, for how to, for example, solicit feedback. So not necessarily expecting, yeah, you could ask for feedback in the all hands meeting, but an introvert is a lot less likely to speak up there, but having other channels where it's like, Hey, you know, a written forum or a one-on-one or, or something like that seems right. like it would let you to right. go more broadly there. Exactly. I mean, the core uh, emotion that psychological safety is about is fear or lack mm-hmm. of, you know, so it's, 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 um, I think what I hope is that people can understand that they may, it may not look like it, but more often than not, people are afraid, right? They're afraid to speak up, right? They mm-hmm. don't, want they don't want to get it wrong they don't want to look bad they don't want to intrude um now it's not big you know big tiger saber-toothed tiger fear <laughs> it's little interpersonal fear but it can be crippling um and it is addressable a, a question that came up was uh about how this affects an interviewing process right a hiring process within an yeah. organization what have you noticed there like do you, does this do, do companies need to change the way they're hiring to promote more psychological safety and i know i'm asking you two questions at once which is a terrible thing but do, do you um how should a company think about designing an interview process that will actually find people source people who are willing to challenge the status quo of a company like maybe a company is not that safe but finding people who are willing to do the work to promote it you know to their right to their left to the people below them and to whatever extent they can up the hierarchy are you are you saying how do we hire people who are able to to help create this kind of environment or how do we hire in a way that how do we do interviews in a way that it's ah, i see yeah i sort of did ask this both those questions um i think i was actually asking the latter more but feel free to respond to whichever one's more interesting to you okay i you know i think i haven't thought directly about either either one before but i think the latter question of sort of how do i what can i do to bring people in who will um, help create a more safe rather than a less uh, safe um, environment for for all of us to collaborate? Um, and I think that's a really good question. Um, and it reminds me of of the efforts they make at Southwest to kind of bring people in who are really team players, right? And, and um, one one of the techniques they use is that they'll actually have. Uh, group interviews you know they'll have they'll have people come uh together and they they might um and what what they're when they're in a team in a group and they're sort of having conversations and questions and discussions one of the things they're they're really looking at is not 
what you're saying when you're speaking, but what you're doing and what you're like when someone else is speaking. Mm. You know, are yep. you, do you have empathy? Are you curious? Are you, you know, are you interested? Are you present? And, and so that might be, you know, sort of the opportunity to observe someone more in situ uh, with other people is, is going to be very valuable, I think, um, for understanding who's going to be a good member of the team. If there's a way to assess um, curiosity, and perhaps there is, you know, with, when people, if you're interviewing someone, do they have questions? Do they ask you questions about about you, about the place? You know, if they have no questions, now that could be fear, it could be, but, but curiosity, I think, is a fantastic enabler of psychological safety because if you have by and large people who are curious then you have people who will ask questions and when you have people who ask questions you have people who are indicating that they want to hear others voice so um here's one more and then we'll kind of start to wrap up um one one idea that is that and I'm going to read you this, this question as well, because I think it's very well phrased. So different people have different life experiences, work experiences, family history, backgrounds, etc., all of which contribute to how they perceive reality, what is safe for them. Um, and the question is really, what is universal about what makes people feel safe, independent of those varying factors? And how should you adapt your, your, your toolkit um, to create a sense of safety based on these differing needs? That question, it's such a lovely question. It makes me want to go back to the beginning here where we started, you and I started by talking about um, this idea that everybody wants to work in an environment where where they can appreciate, be appreciated and be contributing mm-hmm. to the greater good in some way. Mm-hmm. We all yep. want to be a part of something larger than our, ourselves. And we want, um, we want our unique gifts or experiences or skills to be put to good use mm-hmm. and and so you know i i i just think i think that's what what it's all about yeah we have we're gonna have differences we're gonna have different ways of expressing ourselves um we may need different things to bring ourselves forward um but if we start with the premise that this is what we all long for and then we'll we'll figure out ways to get there. Yeah, I know. I love that. It's, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, actually. Someone asked me once, um, this actually was, uh, at a thing I, I experimented, I, or a workshop, sorry, a workshop I did, uh, near Stanford. And there's a group at Stanford that does a, a really great, it's a class, I think, called Designing Your Life. Um, and they turn it into a really good book called, I think, also Designing Your Life. And there's a very interesting question in there where they ask, you people to personally reflect on what is work for to you? Huh? Huh? And I'm curious if uh, this is totally out of the blue. You're not prepped for this at all, but I'm curious when you hear that question, what comes up? I mean, to me, I don't want to be a broken record, but it's, it's for making a difference. Work is for making a difference and work is a forcing function for learning and growing. Mm -hmm. So work is, work is both for me to make a difference out there, but also for me to get better, right? For me, for me to get uh, more, 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 yeah, to grow. I mean, to become more, more capable and possibly more fully myself. 
I mean, if, if I'm just, if I'm doing fun or leisure, that doesn't require me necessarily, it depends on what it is, um, you know, to, to learn and get better. There's some fun uh, leisure things like playing golf or, or, or something where, in fact, you are forcing yourself or trying to force yourself to get better. <laughs> uh, but there's, but there's um, you know, some things like watching a movie where you get to just watch the movie and, and enjoy it and relax. So um, work is for um, making a difference and work is for developing your own abilities to do that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that. My my answer was very, very similar. My answer was um, that work is a place we go or a platform um, for us to develop and express who we are in service of something greater than ourselves. Oh, so perfect. Did you say develop and express? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Who we are in service of something greater than ourselves. I love that. I never connected these dots until right now. That actually ended up being one of the foundational kind of ideas behind doing this podcast was how do we make more organizations like that? Because I think, as you said, that's what on some level we all want. That's what we all want. I mean, we all spent most majority of our waking hours at work. So right. that'd be pretty great. <laughs> sure would. And, and uh, not enough organizations are doing that as well as they should today. Yeah, which which is back to your work. Something I'm very grateful for for what you're up to, and I, I definitely uh, am trying to do my part as well with this with the show and, and the things we're building in the world. Um, one of the, so we'll start to wrap up here. One one question. Um, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, and I apologize if um, if it's trite, but if you could, if a leader's listening to this, right, they're bought in, they're like, yes, Amy, I'm signed up, and you could only have them make one change or take one action, install one new habit. Like one thing, what's the, what would you have them do? Ask questions, ask more questions, right? It just get interested. Um, it's, I wanted to say two things, right? It's go first. And by go first, I mean, I don't mean go first in sort of pronouncing truth, but go first in, you know, doing the scary things like admitting a mistake or, saying I got that wrong or saying I'm worried about this. So, you know, that's sort of, if you want other people to do those things, you better do it first. But I think if I have to say only one thing, it's force yourself to ask more questions. And of course, listen to the answers. You you talked about how powerful it is when someone, particularly someone in a position of authority, and I'm using that distinctly than saying a leader because leadership is distinct from authority, um, how powerful it is when someone apologizes for not having made it safe in the past. Yes. Do you find that people can, it, it would seem that there can be a real, um, the word that comes to mind is healing process, that when when that kind of openness when that kind of space is opened up that something new can emerge do you find that happening and do you you, first of all do you agree and second of all do you are you seeing that happen it's incredibly powerful when when someone says anything along the lines of i am so sorry for what i did that put you in a position where you felt you couldn't speak up honestly to me or fill in the blank lots of other things but i you know to own the impact you have had, which was not your intention, right? But to own the impact and 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 be willing to own the impact is, uh, I mean, it can just unleash so much. 
Absolutely. So a couple of rapid fire questions here. Uh, the questions are short. Your answers don't have to be. <laughs> okay, good. If you could go back, is there, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd change about this book or your previous books since you've kept on learning based on everything you've learned since they came out? In the, in this book, I would, I would do a better job of saying what psychological safety is not earlier on, right? So that okay. no one could, no one could have that, oh, it's about being nice, uh, misimpression for at all or mm-hmm. for long. Um, um, prior books, teaming, my, my book, uh, teaming, how organizations learn, innovate, and compete in the knowledge economy is probably, um, uh, I think it's a good book. I think it's a pretty good read. I think it's a little bit more academic than is, is ideal. Um, although it does, at least it does have stories in it and so on. Yeah. I'm actually in the middle of reading teaming right now. And uh, one thing I just wanted to say that I found just for the listener and, and also feedback for you that I found especially useful in there was you gave language to something I'd been trying to find the words for. Because I, I think if I were to summarize one of the big lessons I got from your work getting ready for this conversation was that context matters like a, a lot. Yes. yes. And, and, there are principles here that, which is a lot of what you're uncovering, but the ways in which those principles are enacted matters tremendously and varies tremendously based on culture, location, power distance, you know, fill in the blank variable here. Uncertainty, you know, uncertainty the, of the work. Are we doing innovation or are we doing production? Yeah. And, and that, and that was exactly the thing. There was something in there, I think it's called the knowledge process spectrum, process knowledge yeah. spectrum. Yeah. It's, it's um, process knowledge spectrum. And, and I remember, but I remember like you, I was like, oh yeah, okay. This is helping me understand when to pull which tool out of the toolbox because you have that idea of there's like routine work where it's super well understood. Then there's complex systems and there's God knows there's a lot of those now. Yep. And then there's, you know, really discovery and innovative work or innovation type work where there are no blueprints. And, and the fact that these tools, um, the application of these principles varies across those, right. that spectrum. I was like, oh, okay. Got it. So I anyway, know. It's a, it's like, I could have had yeah. a date. I mean, it's, it's, like, oh, it's, duh. So, it's so <laughs> obvious, right? It's such a duh that I felt embarrassed putting it in there. But a lot of people have said what you said, which is that was like a huge source of, you know, insight or, or clarity for them. So it's like, yeah, I know. I mean, I often found myself doing it in front of a classroom because of a question would come that would make me realize, oh, I better step back and say, well, it depends. And, and, you know, just for instance, it depends on this. What? Well, you know, how much knowledge we have at this moment to get the result we want. You know, very high in the automotive assembly plant, very low in the pharmaceutical R&D lab, right? And it matters. Doesn't psychological safety is important in all three domains for different reasons and, in, and manifests in different ways. Yeah, I learned this the hard way about two years ago when I took over um, a large uh, product initiative that involved um, hardware and software and cutting edge machine learning. And we were trying to fix all three in one product and we were trying to figure out a lot of really hard problems. And we realized very quickly, uh, or I realized in about three months after beating my head against the wall, wow, my playbook isn't working. <laughs> like I have to throw out my entire playbook because it doesn't, something about it does not apply here. And what I eventually figured out with a lot of help and conversations and coaching was that, oh, it's interesting. All of those plays were for a domain where the links between activities and outcomes are, are well understood. Right. And in this domain, that is not true. 
Like we don't know what's going to happen when we do X. And it's like, oh, right. Okay. Duh. Right. Duh. And yet there you, you know, banged your head against the wall for some period. Exactly. It's kind of stunning, really. Um, Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, Curious, uh, you know, as you go through, you're you're up to a lot. And I'm curious, uh, this is a question I like to ask everybody. What are some of the the rituals, the personal practices, (laughs) habits, routines, et cetera, that you know, enliven you that that give that nourish you, support you, that support you in doing what you do and making the difference you're seeking to make. Oh, don't have a good answer. I run. I mean, not very fast, but I do like getting out there, moving. Um, I like also um, to be, uh, you know, to have time. I don't have enough time to sort mm. of sit and think and. I have to scribble. I often, when I'm writing something, I often have to start with a pen and drawing lines and arrows between things because it's hard to figure out what comes first. And if you just start typing, it doesn't, it's, it yeah. forces it to be in some sequence that might not be right. I'm curious. Uh, you seem like someone who really thinks in systems. Like it seems like a lot of your work is really at the intersection of humans and systems. And I'm curious um, if, uh, are you familiar with the work of a guy named Simon Wardley? No. So I think you might, I'll send you the link after the show, but um, there's a guy named Simon Wardley who has a technique that, and I'm dying to get this guy on the show. If I can, if anyone listening to this has a connection to Simon, I would love to talk to Simon. Um, Anyways, the the reason I bring it up is he has a, what I consider to be a novel method for, um, I would call it almost ecosystem or strategy mapping is what he describes it as in exploring the links between things and uncovering or sort of surfacing um, non-obvious connections, put it that way. And I I just, it came to mind listening to you of like, oh, wow, that might be an interesting um, tool for you as you're doing your work, exploring, as you're exploring into the unknown. I think you might find it, I think there might be something there for you. Absolutely. Um, And I will, I will send you that link for sure. Great. Um, okay. So one or two more and and we'll just wrap up is, um, I'm curious if there are any, uh, what was the last small change you made that had an outsized impact on whether it's your productivity, your sense of satisfaction, happiness, fun, whatever, but what's a small change in recent memory that has had a surprisingly big impact for you? Oh gosh. You know, um, Two very different things came to mind. One is just turning off, you know, using airplane mode when you're not on an airplane. It can really, <laughs> it can help. That can help yeah. me think. Um, and the other is the, just the resolving to be kinder. Um, um, and and I'm kind with strangers, but to be kind with um, to be kind with family members, um, I, th- I think it's working. Good. All right. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I'm curious if uh, if there's any books, particularly recent ones, that have, uh, you know, whether it's an idea or a book you encountered or a thinker or whatever, just something like that, that really took hold in your brain and, and like impacted how you see things in recent years. Leadership and Self-Deception. Do you know that book? I do not. Oh, it's magnificent. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's not magnificent in the sense of being great writing. It's magnificent in the sense of being great philosophy. It's, Mm. it's a kind of, it's one of these rare business books that's a novel. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and the novel is telling, uh, this uh, is, you know, has a character who's sort of learning, Mm. um, 
how not to be a jerk um, and, and, and learning that um, many of the things ha- that he's been blaming on other annoying people in his life, you know, boss, wife, what have you, are in fact uh, things that he's manifesting and creating. Um, and it's got a, a, a it's it's got a, a sort of a wise character who kind of leads him through this journey of discovery um, of how, in a sense, I suppose this, the quickest way to say it is how your own frame um, produces the results that you almost reliably are blaming others for, but that really stem back to you. Um, and it's a very powerful book. I read it a few years ago, and then I read it again not so many years ago. Okay. Well, that's going on my reading list for yeah. sure. It, re- yeah. it reminds me, that last thing you said there reminds me of a um, a question that uh, there's a there's a guy named Jerry Colonna, Colonna I'm not sure how to say his last yeah. name, who, who wrote a really good book called Reboot. And there's a question he likes to ask people in his coaching engagements, which is something to the effect of, how am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Exactly right. It's exactly right. Which I think is a really good yep. question. That, that's, that yep. goes in your category of good questions. It does. It does. And it's not one that people are going to easily be able to answer because the first instinct is not at all. Like all mm-hmm. the bad things out there are out there. Um, and it, so it can take a little bit of work uh, to get to a good answer. For sure. For sure. Um, so what's, what's caught your attention lately? What are you reading, thinking about lately? Now that the, the book is out, you've got a little space from that. What's, space, what's top I of mind think, now? Yeah, well. <laughs> Maybe you don't. I, I assumed I, you did. I think top of mind is getting more concrete, useful tools and, and techniques and ways, ways to help uh, people practice and make a difference in, in their own workplaces. Perfect. I love that. So is, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to say? No. I mean, what was great about this conversation is it really did, as you promised, um, take us in entirely different directions. I don't think I said anything that I've said before, right? So that's quite a big Mission accomplished. Because, uh, yeah, I'm, I, can, I didn't want to, you know, it's, it's good not to be just a, a tape recorder. Yeah, that's, it's a lot of fun. So just in wrapping up, um, are there, for the people listening to this, is there anything, any asks you have of the listener? Anything, if they're listening and they want to help, they want to engage, well, what would you ask of them? It's read the book and then go take it, talk about it with your own team, your own work group. Um, a lot of people ask, well, wait a minute, I'm not the boss. So can I do anything? And the answer is a resounding yes. There's so much you can do just by expressing interest in, in others and listening carefully. You have, you have the opportunity, you know, a dozen times a day to give someone else a moment of feeling safe to engage. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And where, uh, if people are curious, where can they connect with you, with your work? Um, is there anywhere you would direct people online or things like that? Well, I do have a faculty page on the Harvard Business School website, and that shows you things like what I have written and um, what I'm up to um, in in terms of general research aspirations and so on. Perfect. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes. So, uh, Amy, thank you so much for the time. It has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom with all of us. It's, It's a real pleasure. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. 
feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.